I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is, is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Welcome, bookworms, for another week. My squirmers, squirm up. Stop squirming and get to listening because we're back, baby. Okay, imagine this. A worm with headphones on so it could hear our podcast. That, my friends, is a good idea. Another visual Yes. A worm with headphones on at the gym on its back doing crunches. <laughs> worms don't crunch. You don't think worms have a little bit of body dysmorphia too? Oh my God. Can you imagine a worm trying to squirm up the Stairmaster as fast as they can? <laughs> I'd be like, get on the treadmill. You don't have glutes. <laughs> you could just go in a straight line. <laughs> oh my God. Ashley. Yeah, Claire. How was your week? What would you title the memoir of your week? I would title my memoir this week... All over the place and back. Oh, you traveled? <laughs> yeah, I went all over the place and then back here. Where'd you go? Mentally. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really used to, during this pandemic, really being able to come into this podcast with here's the one thing that happened to me this week. I feel like every single week I've been like, here's one defining moment. The rest of the week was spent sitting straight on my couch, sometimes slumped. I'm working on my posture. But things are really starting to pick up again in terms of society. And like you said, we are now vaxxed. So this week I was all over the place. I just feel like there was a lot of things going on. Like I had to go places for some of the companies I'm freelancing with. Like the freelance shit has really started to come into clarity for me and that's going well. Dating is going truly worse than ever, but I am back on dating apps as an update for the people that I promised I was not on dating apps anymore to, which is you guys. I will say karma is a slut because I'm not having a good time. <laughs> I don't, what did you be karma for? Well, I said I was quitting the dating apps and then I went back on them. But you don't owe anybody anything if that's what you feel is best for you. I don't know. Like, I feel like this week was kind of a response to me not gracefully ending the last relationship that I was Fair briefly in. Well, tell them what happened. Let's cut to the, let's cut the bullshit. But honestly, I set up a lot of dates for this weekend and I was planning to get flaky and then I got flaked. I had a date that was set up on, I think Thursday we confirmed Saturday, 7:30. He set the time, he set the place. I didn't confirm day of cause I was like, I'm a chill bitch. And then guess who didn't show up? Him. And I honestly don't know. Okay, here's how much of a narcissist I am. I've really come up with ways that this is a lot of things about me. <laughs> but like nothing negative towards me because I'm a psychopath. I am. These are all unhinged beliefs. You came out of getting stood up more confident. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Kind of. Well, because first of all, here's the thing. is I'm I, proud of you and I think that's good. But I'm just shocked to hear it. The thing is. I am not a good relationship person. I have a lot of things I need to work on, but I am a fun date. I believe that. And I also looked really pretty. You looked beautiful. Like to stand me up for a first date, I was like, listen, man, I truly do believe you're lost. Like to stand me up for a relationship, I don't know, we're on the fence <laughs> with that one. But for a first date, it's like he would have had a really fun time. And I can say that with confidence. I can back it up. I have so many dates with you. But anyway, so I don't, I didn't really feel hurt by it because I uh, hit up one of the guys that I was flaking on and was like, hey, sorry that I flaked on our afternoon plans. Do you want to hang out? <laughs> and I like went and hung out with you for a little bit. Then I went and hung out with a different guy. It was not a night lost. But the scenarios I've thought of in my head are A, he is an absolute freak who gets off on thinking that he like ruined a girl's week. 
Okay. You know, he's like jerking off to the fact that he like thought that I stood there for an hour. <laughs> I'm going to give like likelihoods. I'm going to give like betting odds on each of these scenarios. Okay. They're all going to be low. <laughs> okay. That one I'm going to say is like one to 5,000. I think I gave him 12 minutes before I dipped and went to your house. So if you're listening, sir, we're fine. Put that cum back in your balls. <laughs> that was not a merited cum. <laughs> you would not have gotten hard watching Ashley cry. At best, you would have gotten a semi-chub. And everyone knows you can't jerk off a semi-chub to completion. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was not a tear shed. I was like, oh, man, is this going on? I guess I'm walking to Claire's house. Yeah, no problemo. Second scenario is that it was the last guy who I was dating and kind of just ghosted and wasn't that nice to catfishing me (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm gonna say the likelihood of that one one in a million okay what about matthew catfishing me one in ten thousand (laughs) (laughs) those are my scenarios oh and then the other one is that he just is a flaky shithead (laughs) yeah neither of them confirmed the date the day of and i think he might have just forgotten and then been like oh i don't want to deal with this yeah But more likely you think you were getting catfished by an ex. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Who am I to tell you no? I wasn't there. I guess because he picked a bar that is like pretty close to my house that I go to fairly regularly. And I never told him like what area specifically I lived in. He only knew that I lived in like the general region of Williamsburg. (laughs) Okay, what I'm saying is I honestly didn't take it that personally, but I did decide in my mind you to didn't make take it pretty it that personally. Pers- <laughs> <laughs> you only think it was a specific like heist to get you. Yeah, because I'm like, if it wasn't, what was the point of that? What a weird yeah, move. I agree. That's why I feel like it was pretty narcissistic of me to come up with these scenarios. Cause in my mind, I like can't wrap my brain around someone doing that if it wasn't for like a highly targeted reason. I kind of agree. I like can't imagine standing up somebody on a date these days i would just cancel it's just so easy to be like oh i can't make it anyway claire yeah what's the title of your memoir this week it's confidential to be decided tbd there's a lot brewing in my life right now unfortunately for legal reasons i cannot get into it on this podcast it is up on the patreon right now the full insane story if you guys are interested i recommend a listen it is ongoing I will update the Patreon next week with a full story and I will give ultimately, I think like a small, like you'll hear how it all ended up. I can't ever get into the details from not behind a paywall. If you're interested in the details, as always, check out the Patreon. Yeah. And if you're interested in just more thoughts and general stuff, hit us in the Patreon. And if you ever have any like highly specific questions and you ask us those on the Patreon, we'll always answer. Ashley, We have gotten a lot of reviews. Yes. And I just want to give a hearty thank you to the reviewers. Let's run through it. You guys, because of these reviews, we are officially doing the merch drop. And it is freaking finally coming. Friday, noon time Eastern. We will be dropping the merch options, the website. We are so freaking excited to see you guys in some squirmy, wormy t-shirts. We hope you like them. If you don't, still buy them so that we have more money to just get a better graphic designer for next time. Yeah, that's true. And this is, again, our first drop. We're testing the waters, seeing what you guys like, and hoping it's us. We're just really excited for you guys to have some Squirmy Warmy merch. We hope you love it. 
we're always open to feedback, but also feedback is more helpful if you've bought one and can try it on and then give us feedback, you know, post purchase. Feedback is also helpful when it's worded kindly. So I also like that note. Anyway, without further ado, huge thank you to the reviewers. Thank you to Queen of the Gutter. May you forever reign. Stands of War. We fucking stan. Sassy Hams. A ham after my own heart. <laughs> Hello from Minnesota. Hello, Minnesota. Jenny Wall. I adore you. Molly Funk. Stay funky. Mostly unpopular opinions. The kinds we like. The Rid. Marty McBenji, Mad Gamers, hell yeah, dude, Game Strong, G Money, Make It Rain, Sad Face, Not Good At All, deceptively gave us a five-star review, so I honestly love that bit. Bubba Baby, love you, baby, Let Them Eat Cake Bitches, yes, let them, Jacob Frazier, oh, you guys, buy Jacob Frazier's art. We love it. Chardonnay, hell yeah, pour me another. Not okay with greed, same. S.W. Berry, I adore you. Skimboard 64, let's skim it. Marley G. I think that this is where we stopped last time, but I will double check and make sure we say any we left out next week. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. If you guys, just because we're dropping merch doesn't mean we don't need the reviews anymore. So slap us with five stars if you're feeling generous. We appreciate it so much. Should we get into this week's episode? You guys, I don't even know what to say. I don't know if I'm going soft in my old age or what, but the book we read today was, I would say, the best celebrity memoir we've read so far I know I feel like you and I have gotten caught simping lately and this week is one that is actually worth simping over we're not just like two idiots blinded by bright blue eyes and tattoos this was a genuinely incredible book that you should read to your daughters (laughs) we're gonna need more wine a memoir by Gabrielle Union it tackles Honestly, all of the tough stuff. It is a lot more serious and deep than we thought. If you are not familiar with Gabrielle Union, she is an actress who is in a lot of things you've seen. I can truly guarantee it. And in this book, she covers her childhood being born in Omaha, Nebraska, moving to California at a pretty young age and being raised in an all-white town. She covers a lot of really difficult conversations about race. And colorism. As she gets a little bit older, she covers a lot of really difficult topics about sexual assault. Then we move into her career, the challenges she's faced in Hollywood, the challenges she's faced in relationships, having some complicated first marriage and a beautiful second marriage. To Dwayne Wade, maybe you've heard of him. And her struggle with infertility. Step-parenting. I mean, baby, we get it all and we get some beautiful Prince stories as a cherry on top. (laughs) Ashley, what did you know about Gabrielle Union before the book? What I knew about her before the book was Bring It On. I mean, I I definitely seen her in a lot of things and I knew her as just like a strikingly beautiful actress. Um, And I know that she does a lot of activism because I've seen her pop up here and there, but I don't know that I was heavily aware of what she was advocating for. She has worked with just so many places and I didn't know that about her all I knew is that she played the fearless leader of the Compton Clovers what did you know about her well I also obviously knew bring it on I also obviously knew her as just like a beautiful woman in Hollywood when I went back and thought about it I was like I actually don't know what else I know her from 
in terms of acting, but I remember she was part of the leaked nude scandal from a few years ago. And I remember reading an article she wrote and being like, wow, that was a really good article for just a beautiful actress. And And she is so beautiful. Now that I've read this book, I realized actually that wasn't like a one-off where she like randomly came forth and wrote this incredible essay. It is actually because she, I'd almost say more than an actress, is an activist and a speaker. I combed the pages to see if there was a ghostwriter involved in this book because the way it's written. If you remember our episode with Becca Grishow, we really talked about the through lines that are possible with memoirs and the way that they should be written to kind of loop back on themselves and have these lessons. And not only is the language beautiful, but every story has this perfect button. I mean, the way she delivers these topics is quite striking. And they're very funny and they're deeply honest. The intro, she was like, I'm telling you guys stories that I normally tell my friends over wine. They're going to have you laughing. They're going to have you crying. And she goes, I'm going to have you being like, and you won't believe what I did next. And I kind of rolled my eyes and went, okay, Gabby, I will be honest. This morning I laughed out loud reading this book. I cried three separate times reading this book. And one whole time I had to put the book down because I just went, I cannot believe what they're about to do next. (laughs) So she got me. All right, well, let's get into it. We're going to Need More Wine by Gabrielle Union. I wish we'd thought to bring wine for this episode. I don't think we could have handled this drunk. You're right. (laughs) So, Gabrielle Union, take us to the beginning. She's born in 1975, Omaha, Nebraska, Midwestern parents. Her father's name is Cully. Her mother's name is Teresa. In second grade, they moved from Omaha to Pleasanton, California. Both parents work for telecommunications companies, AT&T and Bell Atlantic, respectively father and mother. Yes. And I do think it's very important to note that the mom was extremely resistant to them moving to such a white neighborhood. And the dad was much more obsessed with like upper mobility and appearances. And so moving to this white suburb to him was a huge sign of success. And to her, it was a terrifying place to raise black children. And so Gabby, I don't know if I should be calling her Gabby. I don't think any of her friends call her Gabby because actually all of her friends call her Nikki. I know we call her Gabby. She called herself Gab once or twice. Gabrielle is just a mouthful. (laughs) Okay. Her friends call her Nikki based on her middle name Monique. And Ashley was pointing out that that is like a couple of steps. I do think it's interesting. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who goes by a nickname for their middle name. (laughs) So she talks a lot about what it was like to grow up and try to assimilate and feel like the other. She doesn't just go into the racism of it, like the casual racism, but she also gets into like the colorism that she experienced. She has a mother that was much fairer than she was. And so there was a lot of resentment that she had these cousins that she felt like were more accepted I mean, I do think that this is something that actually is like more relevant in black communities than white communities that talk about colorism. But just like anything else, sexism, racism, anything, she's like, this is a real thing. This does exist. And I think something really powerful is she's like, stop telling women of color to just love the skin they're in. Because at some point you can't self-love yourself out of an actual oppressive system. So we need to acknowledge first and foremost that this exists and that we need to defeat it. There are like numbers that she brings to the table about the fact that colorism blatantly exists and the way that the conversation is completely buried. I mean, she's quick with the stats. And I will say one of the things that comes out about her as a kid is that she was like a straight A student. She was like a superstar athlete. She was definitely somebody who went in and like wanted to be an excellent student. She ends up graduating from UCLA. And I do feel like in this book, you see she comes ready, not just with anecdotes, but she's like, here's the research. Here's the findings. If you don't believe me, then bring it to, to the academics. And she does this not just in her book, but then she tells anecdotes about having to do this as a stepmother to try to like protect her own stepchildren. She also talks about it being a symptom of this required black excellence that her dad sort of talks her through that like you can't just show up and do 
good. You have to be the best one in the room in order to get any sort of recognition for doing decent. And so I think that that really applied to every corner of her life in a lot of, in not a lot of ways, in every way. She was reading three newspapers a day as a middle schooler. Yeah. You can't get me to read an article now. I'm a freaking adult. I see a headline and I'm out. This book, I think me and Ashley were both surprised to see it's really mostly about race and her assault and her experience being a black woman first and foremost and I mean it's really beautifully written it's funny it's honest it's heartbreaking I mean a lot of it is about being like believe women believe their stories I'm like I don't know how you could not read this book everything she says sounds like the most honest true thing ever but she even goes as far as to talk about the time she got called out for being colorist by like her older sister's friend he was like you don't date guys darker than you and she was like oh shit, I don't. And how she wanted to shut down, but she had to acknowledge that. And then when she realized that about herself, she actively changed it. She talks at the end of the book about how her high school best friend was gay and she didn't know it. And she used the F word all the time. It ended up being, she was the last one who got to know that he had come out of the closet because he was like, the language you use, you are not with me. And she talks constantly about, she's like, we all have work to do. I'm just trying to have the conversation. You have to hear it. You have to believe it. And you have to want to engage with it and try to push yourself to be better. And then I think the way that she talks about like her own learning curve, you don't leave feeling defensive. You leave wanting to be as good as she is. And you're like, if she can grow, I want to grow with her. <laughs> yeah. Just like every story she tells, you're just like, I'm so happy that I learned that. The way her white classmates would just say the N word, like it was just a bad word saying you're pretty for a black girl yeah the microaggressions where they were always constantly talking about other black people that they didn't like but in front of Gabrielle because she worked so hard to assimilate she was like the success for me was not appearing black like they would talk shit about black people but they didn't mean me and at the time I like took that as a compliment I mean she tells this story about getting her hair relaxed in Mm -hmm. seventh grade and so the way they do it is they use a chemical relaxer the way it works is when it starts to burn, you tell your stylist and that's when it's time to wash it out. And she was like, well, if I just let it keep burning, that must mean my hair will get straighter and that'll be better and I can fit in better. And so she let her hair burn until she had open lesions on her scalp that ended up scabbing over. I mean, I will say something about Gabby that makes me laugh is she is a real Claire Parker and that she will say a first and last name. Yeah. And she will say a first and last name if you were her friend, if you were her enemy, if you were just a poor kid in school and she felt like you were a good representation of all the poor kids. Yeah. (laughs) One girl, Lisa told her story about assault at a party and that bitch got named first and last. If I had been named by Gabrielle Union in her memoir as a not rosy character, you can believe I would change my name. I mean, I think we got first and last name of the girl who got her period first in their whole school. That fucking whore. God only (laughs) gives periods to women who are sluts. And that's (laughs) something I learned early. So in the summer, she would go back to Omaha and live with her grandma and her hang out with her cousins. And that was sort of her getting to like reclaim her blackness and go back where it was okay to be black. It was a black neighborhood. And it not only was it okay to be black, but it's also kind of where she learned about her culture because she spent so much time repressing that side of herself when she was in Pleasanton that she was able to like discover like music and boys and like things that made her feel herself and comfortable that she just had no access to in California. I mean, she talks about watching Omaha be taken over by like drugs and gangs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's this beautiful story about how these are the kids she grew up with and they had good hearts and they were good kids. And it's like, this just happens to a town and it has nothing to do with the quality or character of the people. It's just when you're kids, you get caught up in bad shit. I mean, she lists everybody she knows who dies Mm -hmm. and you're just like, I cannot imagine knowing that many people who have been shot. It's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And I do feel like she does a really good job of painting the inequality, like going back and forth from Pleasanton to Omaha and like this area of Omaha. She was like, 
it's just like what you do from Pleasanton is you like go to college and you get a job and what you do from Omaha is you just like don't have those opportunities. And I'm not saying all of Omaha. Obviously, we're talking about like the area that she was from. I know that Omaha is like an actual. It's a steakhouse, no? Her father, on the other hand, moved them to this white town. He, I don't know if she likes him a ton. I think it's like a forgiving we talk a lot about how it's easy to forgive dads and not that easy to forgive. I don't know that forgive. she's forgiven her dad. I don't know that she's forgiven her dad, but she definitely... It's clear that they're still in contact. He never gets a redeeming story arc. Every time he's brought up, it's in a negative light. He does some damning things and they're never in any way justified or explained or softened by a cute story. Yeah, I guess it's not cute, but it's also not explicitly negative in my opinion. I think it was pretty explicitly negative. So let's start with the way that he cheated on her mom for years. That part was explicitly negative, I guess. And then even what he did in the week wake of her assault was pretty bad. Okay, so let's talk about her dad. Okay, here's how I'll say it. is I, I'll say that she presents everything he does that sucks from a position of, like, he did love us a lot, I think. So basically what happens is she has this father. She's in this two-parent household. They bro- both work a ton. It sounds like her middle school and high school years were kind of characterized by parents who were too busy working so she could get away with a lot. She was the middle child with five years on both ends. I mean, I think she was literally everything in high school. She was the star student who worked her ass off and got great grades. She also was the star athlete. I mean, she talks about how fast and, like, she really excelled at sports. And then she was also kind of a partier like she was also like sneaking around going to clubs going to parties like doing and I'm like what didn't you accomplish (laughs) she had a well-balanced life but so she finds her dad's ATM card one day that he uses specifically for the mistress and that's when she finds out her older sister already knew that he had had this mistress for years and he had like a full double life with her yeah and I guess his plan of attack was just to keep ignoring the mom for years until the mom caved in and gave him a door. She talks about for years, they would just not say a word to each other. They barely acknowledged each other. He would be on, gone on business trips all the time. And it turns out, of course, he was just always in Hawaii with the other wife. There's a heartbreaking story of when Ugh. the mother finds two tickets to the ballet. Her mother sounds like a wonderful person who really fought hard to keep her children cultured. She took him to the ballet all the time. She took him to listen to Nikki Giovanni read poetry. They would go on. I thought this was cute. They would go up to the Bay Area and look at all these like fancy houses. And she would always be like, you can accomplish anything the world is as big as you want it to be. It's your God-given right to explore and meet everybody. That's really beautiful. I thought it was really beautiful, too. So one day she finds two tickets from her father for the ballet, and she's so excited. She takes an afternoon and off to get her hair done. She gets a new dress. Gabrielle's like, I'd never in my life seen her take a day off work. This is a woman who worked a full-time job, was going to night school to try to get an advanced degree, which the father pulled the plug on when he found out that it was for literature and not for like a technical yeah. skill. Yeah. But then also she had worked a night shift cleaning a daycare so that the, do- the children could go to a free daycare. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this was like a woman who worked her ass off for her family. They both sounded like people who worked very hard and had a very comfortable middle class life. She took the afternoon off, got all ready to go, sat on the couch, waited. The husband comes home. The husband grabs the tickets. The husband leaves without her. It was for the mistress. That's a tough blow. <laughs> I mean, heartbreaking, heartbreaking stuff. Still, she does not divorce him. Years later, when Gabrielle calls her to ask her about it, she says... And I quote, everything you remember is what you remember. Ashley, what the fuck do you think that sentence meant? Because I literally was like, that is a powerful statement that I don't understand. I think it means that like you can choose to remember the fact that he was completely absent and sleeping with a mistress or 
I don't think he wasn't a present father because she does talk a lot about him watching her games. Yeah. And every time she had an athlete boyfriend, she would watch the athlete boyfriend's games too. So that's what I mean is like you can remember the fact that he like wasn't there for them emotionally, that he was like fully living a double life with another woman. Or you can remember that he was at the games, that he provided a home and a stable life for them. Like what you remember is what you remember. I don't know. Like it's, it's a real sentence that I'm not, I still don't know if I, it's like too powerful. <laughs> I mean, it's like when you apply it to anything in your life that like wasn't necessarily like when, like apply it to old relationships. It's like everything you remember is what you remember. Like, do you, whenever you get like wistful about something, it's like, you're probably remembering the wistful parts. the wistful parts. Like I was thinking about Los Angeles recently and I was like, I really miss it. And then I was like, oh, no, when I left, I was like screaming to get out, you know? Yeah. And so and the mother later goes, look, I was doing my own thing, too. I didn't let him hold me back. Ultimately, he was a good provider. And that's what I wanted from a husband. I wanted to make sure my girls were taken care of and we had a roof over our head. So the end comes when one day she goes to pay the bills and they're overdrawn. And I guess so much money had been spent on Hawaiian trips with the mistress that there was nothing left to pay for the house. And he had written her a note saying, Teresa, I'm going to be out. He had misspelled Teresa. That's another tough After almost 30 years of marriage. So she just writes, I'm divorcing you. Yeah. I mean, so she basically says she stayed with him because he was providing for them. And then when he was no longer providing for them, she was like, well, then I'm no longer what was it, a week after the divorce was finalized? So Gabrielle, the way she writes it, she goes, their divorce was finalized in early June. He married his mistress June 9th. And I just remember going, that's still early June. Oh, my yeah. God. He did not waste a freaking minute. He flew out his own mother, didn't tell her what it was. They were like, does she know you're about to get remarried? And he goes, no, because she doesn't know I'm divorced yet. And everybody's like, you're going to kill your mom. Yeah, he flew out his mom for this wedding and, like, told her as everyone was getting dressed for the wedding. They were like, okay, we're flying her out to come visit us. Someone needs to take her dress shopping because she's going to a wedding tomorrow that she doesn't know about. Like... It was a mess. And then he moves to Arizona with the mistress wife. Five days later is Gabrielle's college graduation. He doesn't go because the, the mistress wife wants a honeymoon. And was also like, I don't know that I should be going to the family event for the family I just destroyed. Good and call, they're like, honestly. fair enough. Um, but it does sound like they're still all friends because she says that, that woman ended up being a very good grandmother to her stepchildren. Yeah. I mean, you don't let somebody you don't speak to anymore be a good grandmother to your stepchildren. So... Yeah, I think they're there. I think that there's just shit to work out. Yeah, it seems like maybe she had to accept him for the man she he was, which was not a great husband. Yeah. But, you know, we're all doing our best. Let's talk about her as a young woman. This was a, first of all, funny chapter. Second of all, one that, like, really resonated, and I was happy she wrote it. It was about getting her period. <laughs> So she talks about going to Catholic school and the fact that they didn't teach her jack shit. When she talks about getting her period and the way that she describes that nobody knows why it would come. It was such humiliation. It would just bleed through your pants. And like, she's like, we were dropping like flies. It would just pick you off one by one. And I was just like, I remember that feeling of like, you're so humiliated pads. She thought her clitoris was the vagina. So she was wearing pads up high and just always leaking. Yeah. And I really understood this. Like she talks about being sort of, walked through tampons by a friend walked not a through parent. she finally gets a tampon because they're at the pool she's been like bleeding in the country club pool she's humiliated her friend's like well just use a tampon she's like i can't get it in it hurts the friend comes in and goes what are you talking about she literally puts the tampon in for her yeah that's a good friend do you have any friends that would have put a tampon in for you all my friends we all like learned it from each other you had a friend put a tampon in your body yeah 
Oh, wow. I guess I didn't have any friends. I couldn't use a tampon until like ninth grade. I could not figure it out. I I couldn't figure it out. I like didn't understand it's it. None angle. of us understood Nobody it. Nobody explains the angle. Yes. Okay. Basically, I had one friend with sisters, older sisters, and she's the one who like put it in all of us for the first time because none of us knew what was going on. I wasn't going to talk to my mom about it. I remember my mom finding out that I was using tampons and like being a little judgy. I'm like, well, that's so funny. I was just going to make fun of Gabrielle because she's like, when her friend says, why don't you use a tampon? She goes, because I'm not a whore. Yeah. At some point, you can't be wearing pads. You cannot wear a pad with a bikini. I wore a pad for a really fucking long time because I didn't know how to use a tampon. And no one ever presented it to me. And I was like, if I haven't been, if, if it's not been bestowed upon me, how could I just, what am I just going to pick these up and figure out how they work by reading the box? Once I went tampon, I never went back though. I remember finding out to this day, my friends use pads sometimes. And I'm like, what are you a fucking baby with a diaper on? I oh no, I would never put on a pad now ever again. I would not for die. the rest of my life. I mean, they're huge. Yeah. But can I tell you what? I feel really gross talking about period stuff, even though Gabrielle helped me feel less shame, but I still come from a culture where women aren't allowed to have bodies. Okay. <laughs> So when I got my period for the first time, my family was on a vacation, a beach vacation. It was the first one we had really ever gone on. We were with like all of my parents' college friends. We had these like houses, whatever. So I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, I don't know how to move forward from this. Like, I don't, I have to tell someone. How old were you? I was in eighth grade. I got it really late. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) I'm a late bloomer. (laughs) And so... I like had to talk to my mom and I was so humiliated and she got me these pads and I basically was just like a ruined woman for the rest of this trip. But then my dad came up to me and my dad said to me, "Uh, congratulations. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what? I was, oh my God. And he goes, you know, congratulations on uh, becoming a woman. (laughs) I like you guys I have an incredible dad and I love him very much but like every time I think about that story I I'm like I don't know if I could call him this week (laughs) can I tell you it's literally Mother's Day we're recording on Mother's Day and I want to go down on the record and say one of the worst things that mothers do is call other mothers when you get your period I just remember being like on the phone and not just hearing my mom tell other people but being on like the recipient end of other women finding out that random girls had gotten their period and I'm just like this is something I want to die with in shame like I would I'd rather find out that I don't have a uterus and I never will (laughs) rather than have to have Nicholas mom also know that I'm yeah but here's the thing here's why I was so happy reading this period chapter is because like we are still sitting here after reading this chapter after we're literally old women (laughs) but we weren't then when you're 12 nothing's more humiliating is that nothing is more humiliating and so the fact that she wrote this humiliating chapter I think normalizing to women a normal thing their bodies do is very useful (laughs) can i tell you something i had sex ed in third grade i had sex ed in fourth grade i had sex ed in seventh grade i had sex ed in ninth grade yeah we had all of them i think i was in 10th or 11th grade when i found out that women have two holes (laughs) (laughs) i remember being like huh and they're like yeah like you don't pee from the same hole you have sex with. And I was just like, I really did think that you're just shoving tampons up your pee hole. I don't know. (laughs) I literally had no idea. I had no idea. I didn't know anything. And that is why I think 
people writing stuff like this is important because, I mean, I know a child isn't going to read this book, but I do think reducing the shame that exists around periods is so important. The other funniest story in this book is she gets a yeast infection. She talks about being in Miami, but she's already famous and she's too embarrassed to get monostat from a CVS. Yeah. Which I've been there, sister. I've been fucking there. So instead she goes in and she wants to buy monostat. Instead she buys Twizzlers because she's like too humiliated and she's just like, just getting some Twizzlers. She goes outside. She calls her friend. She goes, what can you do? Like what's a natural cure for a yeast infection and her friends like cranberry juice. First of all, I don't even think that that's true. That's a UTI. Oh, so what does Gabrielle Union do? She goes into the CVS again and this time she goes in and gets cran apple juice and like drinks a gallon of like ocean spray <laughs> juice as she calls her friend and tells her and she's like, that's sugar. That's going to make it worse. <laughs> and she's like, fuck now. And she goes, yogurt. What you need to do is put yogurt up there. So she goes to the guy's house she's, that she's staying she's with. She's in Miami visiting a dude that she's trying to stang stang in she's not the kind of guy who will go buy you a tampon no so she goes to his house and finds yogurt what does he have vanilla danon bitch what she then tries to take the vanilla danon and scoop it all up in her vag and she can't get it inside the good part so, so she, she calls, calls her, her friend again <laughs> and her friend's like you need to create like a tampon test tube and she's like what you need to do use a straw as a syringe put it on the tampon and then like shove the tampon up there she's like we have no straws i'm an adult okay she goes to a McDonald's in the middle of the night to get straws. <laughs> to bring a straw back to her house to straw yogurt onto a tampon to try to cure her yeast infection with vanilla Dannon yogurt. I cannot think of a worse way to destroy your vagina. And ultimately, she comes to the conclusion that, like, look how far I was willing to go. To avoid the humiliation of having to buy Monistad and actually destroy my body first. And she's like, this is, this needs to stop. It does need to stop. I agree with that. And also, I can't imagine being famous and needing to buy an embarrassing thing. Like one time I bought Plan B and I was like, God, the pharmacist is going to forever think of me as that whore he wants to <laughs> like no he's a pharmacist who will buy plan b from him i was thinking that i was like i've never been a celebrity having to buy monistat but i have been a 15 year old girl buying monistat and when you're 15 you also kind of think you're a celebrity yeah. like you have the same paranoia that everyone's watching you yeah and so but also she like does make this really good point of like why are yeast infections so embarrassing like why do we live in this world where like when a woman gets a yeast infection everyone is like what did she do wrong <laughs> Meanwhile, guys get jock itch and they're like, of course, they're a dude. They're sweating. They don't they're change their jocks. clothes. <laughs> they're lifting too hard to remember to shower. So she talks a lot about feeling unattractive when she was younger. And it especially was like very exacerbated by the fact that she was the black girl at the school. And so she felt very much like she had to be kind of like the funny friend sidekick because mm -hmm. she was just not a viable option. Yeah, she describes it like feeling like a eunuch that nobody wanted to date the black friend. But she also says that she does think that she was like genuinely unattractive. Like her parents never called her pretty. I wonder until when, though. I feel like maybe she was awkward up until 11 or 12. But I have to say by junior year of high school, she's dating Jason Kidd, the Jason Kidd, who was already at that point such a famous basketball high schooler that his high school had to have basketball games in arenas that had 5,000 seats and still people got sent away. And he was doing post-game 
press meetings after every high school game. Yeah. So he was quite the get to date and she dated him. There's three things that I went, okay, Gabby on. And one of them was that she was awkward. And I'm like, maybe until you were 11, but yeah. I, she offered no photographic evidence. Yeah. It seems like when she was going, she was going back to Omaha every summer where she always had a guy that liked her. At some point she starts going to the clubs all the time for high schoolers. It seems like she did have a lot of boyfriends. She was able to lose her virginity by like 15. She was getting it in. I, yeah. I do believe that her at her primarily white high school, she did feel and was Absolutely. treated very differently. Absolutely. I do think she found other outlets and that she was very stunning. Yeah. And so, yeah. So she dates Jason Kidd. She like tells these really funny anecdotes about like being obsessed with dating him, like getting his name manicured onto her nails. Yeah. And then when things were going bad, just getting J and K, which meant that they were on the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Then she's dating another kid, Alex, who... She met them in high school, and then they dated through college. And his parents were racist as fuck. They hated interracial dating, even though... They were an interracial couple. They were Mexican and Greek. Also, in high school, starts her pattern of cheating, which I found, like, very refreshing the way she talks about it so honestly. And, I mean, obviously, she's like, it's not a great thing that I did. It seemed like she was getting cheated on a lot. She was cheating a lot, literally through even her first marriage, but... She cops to it, which I find very respectable. And interestingly enough, she talks about it as a coping mechanism to get out of relationships. Like when she was ready to break up with somebody, she would just cheat on them, let them find out, and then get out of having to confront them. And it's funny the way that she followed in her own father's footsteps. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that is like a direct result. It wasn't like, oh, it like runs in the family. It's like, no, you like do the example that's set for you. Yeah. And it was just her need to be liked and good she didn't ever want to break up with anybody she didn't want to cause a ruckus it, I know it's very counterintuitive but it does make sense to me that the kind of person who never wants to be the person that hurts you by breaking up with you would be the person who like destroys you by cheating on you yeah completely so freshman year the summer after freshman year of college so she's working at a Payless shoe source there had been a string of attacks on Payless shoe sources like someone a former employee had been robbing several of them and they as employees were not warned that this had been happening and a man came to rob the store that she was working at and raped her at gunpoint at gunpoint extremely violently there was another girl in the store for whatever reason she was allowed to just sit in the bathroom gabrielle at one point is able to grab the gun shoot at him there's a fight that breaks out the man escaped at yeah. the back door and when the police gets there, I mean, it was horrible. She was completely traumatized. And this is where, before I was talking about her father not being painted in a good light. I mean, once again, he comes and she talks a lot about how people made her assault about them. She talks a lot about how her father seemed not outraged that something so horrible could happen to her daughter, but that somebody could do such an affront to him by attacking his family. Yeah. There's an article written about it in the local newspaper. And she says to this day, he keeps the article clipping in his wallet that's and, really weird. And she's like, I have no idea why, but it does feel like a reminder to him that people would dare do something so disgusting to him. He went to all the arraignments. She talks about how her own mother couldn't believe that this had happened. She, had, she has a very funny line in there about how her mom had always trained the daughters that if something terrible was about to happen to you and the man was about to attack you, as a woman, you should scream, shit, shit, bastard. <laughs> yeah. Because a man would be so thrown off by a woman cursing that it'll, it'll kind of protect you. Which is, like, not really, I guess, useful advice. But it is a cute, funny story. Gabrielle obviously has horrific PTSD. She talks about how the worst thing to do to a rape survivor and somebody with PTSD is make them go into a courthouse and testify against this man who did go on to attack more paylesses and finally was caught. 
Mm-hmm. She was able to sue Payless for putting them in a dangerous situation by like not warning them that somebody was targeting Payless's. Yeah. Yeah. She ultimately uses the money she won to help her boyfriend, Alex, go to beauty school, which she drops out of, which is like a sad. What was he studying at beauty school? It doesn't matter because he didn't finish. And then Alex's family like finally accepted her because now she had been through this trauma and it like felt weird to like keep being so racist to this girl who had just been through a trauma. I mean, it builds a lot of resentment in a lot of relationships in her life. She does say she feels lucky that the police actually handled her situation very well, which is mm-hmm. rare. Shocking. She then also found therapy. She went to some horrible man therapist who wanted to like hypnotize her constantly. And she was like, I don't know. Can we just talk first? But ultimately she found group therapy at UCLA, which I do think saved her life. Yeah. She talks about how the hypnotizing method, especially before having any sort of talk therapy, she was like, I'm so broken that like my consciousness, you can't even be bothered with it. We had to like go straight into the unconsciousness. Yeah. She's like, what do you want to talk to the manager here? Yeah. Um, she finds a group of women, though, and I, I do think they saved her. Because of that, she's become very outspoken about her experience with sexual assault and helping survivors. And she talks a lot about going from a victim to a survivor. But also how it follows her around to this day. 24 years later, she says, and she can't sit with her back to a door. She says she hasn't been in a bank since because she can just imagine getting mugged there. She lives in fear still, and I, I do think it was a really honest depiction of what it is to have a trauma like that happen to you she does have this one line where she talks about not ever being able to move past it but to be able to eventually like move through your life with it and I do think it's really powerful the way that she has become such an outspoken person for other women I think with everything she does a really great job of illustrating her journey to get there yeah and how hard it it was and the steps that are left to go. I think you were saying this, that it's not just that like, oh, I had this transformative moment and now I'm different. It's I'm still on the journey. I've worked hard to get where I am. I'm in a different place than I was, but it never ends. Yeah, I think that a lot of these essays really showcase her thought process and the way that she's still in that thought process. Like, do you know when you're trying to convince yourself of something that you know to be true and you want this to be who you are and you're like reminding yourself, this is what we do. I mean, I think a great example of that is the essay about mentoring, her finding her voice as sort of a woman in leadership. She is given this opportunity to give a speech at an Essence magazine event. Mm-hmm. And they tell her you have to talk for five minutes. And she's like, holy shit. And she kind of gets up there. And for the first time is very honest about how she used to be somebody who revels in people's pain and loved when people failed because she did feel like there was a limited amount of success for everyone. And if somebody came, they would take her shine and she's learning how to not be that person anymore. And Oprah was like, wow, you finally said the truth about what, how hard we have to work just to be seen. And I think that started her on this path of like, let's be honest, but also then let's be better through our honesty. Yes. And she hates that LA is a city that values and rewards pretending. So I want to also talk about some of the really important things that I think she says about mentorship. In the very next chapter, she talks about getting lunch with her friends and her and her friends were all, you know, in their late thirties, early forties, three women are talking about how resentful they are of the young women who come in at their jobs, be it Hollywood, be it corporate America, be it any industry, because whoever's up next is the one that's going to push you out. And she makes that joke. She goes, they tell you to lean in, but it's just so they can push you over. And she talks about meeting this woman, Ryan destiny, who comes up to her at a party and is like, Oh my God, people say I look like you. And she's 22. And Gabrielle's like, fuck you. I'm not going to be your mentor. What am I going to give a hotter version of me? All of my knowledge I worked so hard for. There was a wave of panic that if I imparted my knowledge, I would lose it in some kind of way. Which I think is such a relatable thought to be like, okay, if like I had to figure this out for myself, so everyone should have to figure this out for themselves. Like that's what Janice Dickinson did. Okay, your advantage is that you're still young. My advantage is that I've learned. If I give you what I've learned, then now you're young and smart. And what am I? 
And she talks about how she doesn't want to be that person. That, and she thinks about all the women that helped her and have helped the next generation and how the only way we can all grow together is to help one another and how she's like trying to actively every day fight that thought of being jealous or insecure. Mm-hmm. She does a really beautiful job of acknowledging the generation of black actresses that came before her and the realization that the opportunities that she has are not because she pushed them out, but because they paved the way for more roles and more opportunities for the women in her generation. So at one point she ends up getting a life coach mm-hmm. and this life coach asks her to make a list of things that make her happy and all she can really think of is food items yeah it's like real butter ground beef and then the third one is imitation crab yeah which is because it's like cheaper (laughs) (laughs) so eventually she and this life coach become a lot closer she starts letting her guard down she brings the life coach to a party with her and at this party she's kind of holding court talking mad shit about somebody and like I know that feeling so well when you're just like talking shit about someone and you don't even hate them once I've got called out by the person yeah it was this comic and I used to talk shit about her all the time and I literally got a text from her one day being like, hey, Claire, so everyone is telling me that you're like talking shit about me all the time. Can you please just stop? I don't think it's a good look for you. And I was like, one, mortified, obviously. I mean, I remember getting that text and like dropping to the floor. I was in public and I just put my face on a bar <laughs> floor. I was just like, I melted down like a freaking minion. And I just had to own it. I was like, fair enough. Sorry, I'll stop doing that. <laughs> but then I was like even more embarrassed because I was like, this girl that I do not like now thinks I'm so obsessed with her. She's all I can think of to talk about. But part of it was, it was true. I was insecurely going into these parties and being like, well, what do I know that everybody in here has in common? And I was like that we all definitely hate this one comic. And yeah. I did want to text back to her and I didn't cause I'm not petty. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> they're I did all be joining like, in. by the way, I've never heard somebody say no. I've never used that as an, opening line and had somebody be like actually that girl's my friend everybody's like oh god that girl is the worst so but that's be- the thing it's like it's intoxicating when you just like start talking shit about a common not even enemy just like a person that you know that nobody really likes and everyone's just vibing on it and I will say the life coach I would have hated having her in my life but what she says here I think is really poignant she says how did that change your life and she goes did you get her guy did you get her job is your house bigger now Spending an hour of your time talking shit about someone else, like, what did that do for you? Other than, like, maybe make you look funny. Maybe make you funny or the center of attention. See, that to me is enough. (laughs) Okay, here's the thing is I love talking shit and I'll never stop. But I do agree that this, like, holding court and, like, bonding with people over talking shit about someone that like should not be taking up that much mental space. Sometimes when I hear people do it about someone that I don't really care about, like, uh, yeah, I'll still join in, obviously. But then I'm like, wow, that person is really negative. You know what I mean? Like, you do walk away with a kind of sour opinion of that person sometimes. But sometimes you're like, oh, we really bonded talking bad shit. I cannot believe I'm hearing these words come out of your mouth. Okay, but that's what I mean is I'll never <laughs> stop. And especially I'll always talk shit with you. But I mean, this like putting people on blast publicly, like what is that doing for anybody? Anyway, I really like the way that she acknowledges that she was a Hollywood mean girl, that she was a big old shit talker, that she has these hurdles to finding her happiness, that she takes active steps towards hurdling. Okay, so she was married once before Dwayne Wade. To a guy named Chris. A guy named Chris that she honestly didn't know. And once she got to know him, they were already married. And it turns out she couldn't stand him. (laughs) (laughs) So like they met at some party. They were seeing each other every other weekend. She was living in LA. He was living like Jacksonville. He proposes. This is the funniest story I've ever heard. 
she comes home she opens the door rose petals on the ground she follows up there he is on one (laughs) knee with a ring in one hand and his other hand in a bucket of kfc potatoes her friends go oh sentimental inside joke she goes no he was just caught off guard And he was eating a snack. And I guess he didn't think to just stop eating the snack when he was proposing. I mean, truly a picture of what their relationship became. He took her for granted so fucking hard. So that weekend he proposes to her. She opens up his computer that weekend and texts pop up. He gets like a message from his best friend being like, oh, you still got that Greek girl coming next weekend. Clearly, Gabrielle Union is not the Greek girl. She freaks out. She... She screams at him and says, you proposed yesterday. And you lined up another girl for next week. And he goes, well, I didn't know you were going to say yes, <laughs> which is one of the funnier responses I've ever heard to cheating. And wow. and they're off to the races. I guess, you know, she, as we've learned, is clearly somebody who likes to be in control, likes to be Miss Perfect. She also cares a lot, a lot, a lot about public perception. And she says that a huge factor in not calling it off right then and there is that they had already announced to the press that they were engaged. And she was like, I didn't know how to be like, yesterday I announced that I was engaged. Today I'm announcing that that's actually already fallen flat. She actually has a very funny comment about that. She's like, now I look back and I'm like, what would the headline have been? Eighth lead. And she's all that. (laughs) Recalls off engagement. Yeah. But so they try and go forth with the wedding. She's walking down the aisle thinking, I do not like this man. (laughs) The pastor goes, Gabriel, do you take this man, Chris? (laughs) She goes, yeah, I, Gabriel, take this man, Chris. Because she regretted it so much, she made the engagement be two full years. And at that point, he had been cut from the Jaguars. They were hoping he'd be on the Raiders. He did not make the Raiders. Yeah. He never again made a paycheck in their relationship. Yeah. He had told her at one point that he was one semester away from a kinesiology degree and he wanted to get into sports medicine. Turns out he was actually a year and a half away and he had no money. So she had to pay for him to go back to college. But I don't think he did. He didn't. He then was like, I need you to open a business for me. So she rented him out an office and he's like, well, I can't work in here. It's not feng shui properly. Yeah. So she had a feng shui in office, which, you know, I'm on board with feng shui. I really do think the energy flow of a room is important. But they didn't just like eyeball it. I think they hired someone to feng shui it. Yeah, and I also think no one knows what the company did. So I don't think the energy flow comes before a mission statement. I agree with that. He's spending all of his time cheating on her. She doesn't give a fuck. She says she cheated in less quantity but higher quality. Her tip for cheating? Hit him, Ashley. Her tip for cheating is you need to cheat with someone who also has something to lose. (laughs) And hopefully more to lose. Yeah. It sounds like she had some steamy on-set romances. I'd love to figure out with her. I would love to know the details with that one. She also talks about how because she was the breadwinner, his life was nothing. I mean, all he was doing was just kind of like harumphing around. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to say this line that I thought was so funny is that she talks about how she was like, I actually didn't even mind that he was cheating on me. I just wished he would stop being so fucking mopey. (laughs) (laughs) She had a lot of funny breakups. She at one point talks about they weren't speaking for like nine straight days, but she had a red carpet to go to and she didn't want to go alone. So she pretended to fall down the stairs so that he would run to her. And then she'd be like, and now I have to go to the red carpet injured and alone. And he was like, all right, baby, I'll take you. And she's like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) Oh my God. They tried to go to couples counseling and the the first therapist goes you guys have no shot you need to break up right now <laughs> and they're like wrong and they're like it was the closest we ever were because we were trying to prove her wrong for a few weeks and then we went to another one and the next one was like i can't believe you guys ever made it past dating like nobody believed in them 
They finally did call for a divorce. The final straw in their relationship was that they had gone to a dinner party and I guess a girl there was a porn star. So she goes home. He fucks the porn star and then they fuck again later. And then six months after that, the porn star tries to extort them. And so Gabrielle has to like meet this woman at 7 a.m. at a cafe for a sting operation to try to figure out what this woman has photos of because she's going to be in a movie and they don't want to lose like a Christian audience. If Gabrielle Union's husband has a finger up his booty hole or something and there's photos to prove it, the woman doesn't even show up. But Gabrielle is now like, not only did I have to fucking pay for your whore, I had to pay for this extra like PR crisis specialist who came in to like get the photos of you cheating on me. They divorced. He took her for a cleaners. He took her for a cleaners. To the cleaners. Whatever. He actually got a cleaners out of her. She bought him a laundromat. He has Um, a small business now. She's this whole chapter on how to get through breakups and all the crazy things she's done in breakups. And she talks about breaking up with that one guy, Alex, from college. And after... Oh, my God. We have to tell the story about literally Corny Keith. (laughs) She, like, cheats on him with this guy named Keith, who's corny as hell. He... Finally finds out Alex because Corny Keith sends her a handwritten note talking about how wonderful the fellatio was. Yeah. Thank you for the fellatio. And Alex is like, what the hell is this? And she's just like, what does it look like? I gave him fellatio. <laughs> they break up. He goes on to date like a backup dancer for JLo and a model. She's stuck with Corny Keith who shows up to her like college graduation. With a vase. <laughs> with a crystal vase and literally corrects her grammar in front of her friends. She starts like stalking him. She dresses in all black and tries to look through she the windows. She starts stalking Alex because she's like obsessed with the fact that she accidentally let a good one go for this corny idiot. Gabrielle Union, Alex, you're so the beauty good. school dropout, by the way. <laughs> you're so beautiful, but we've all been there. Anyway. That's where she has this really funny line that I think you liked about how Listen, it's easy to find yourself when you're single, but that doesn't mean you have to be abstinent. As she talks about how um, everyone is always like, just be single and spend some time finding yourself. And she's like, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And I'd be like, oh, I was just, I was working on finding myself though. <laughs> she's like, you got to fuck as much as you can and everybody you want. And she's like, there's a lot of hours in the day. You can go to therapy and then a date. <laughs> yeah. And damn it. If I don't agree. Oh, you agree you're going to therapy? <laughs> I agree with always going on dates. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) she's dating around. She's living her life. She's getting more famous. She is at a prince party and she meets Dwayne Wade's brother who... Donnie. Who's like, by the way, my brother has a huge crush on you and we've been trying to get in touch with your people to see if you could host this Super Bowl party with him. And she's like, oh yeah, that sounds cool. So she's accidentally hosting this party with Dwayne Wade, who she's never met. They don't hit it off romantically, but they become friends. And then they become best friends. And then they become lovers. And what does she say about him? She has this beautiful line where she says, I didn't want to be on this planet without him. I didn't want to not bear witness to him succeeding. I thought that was lovely. It is lovely. So they fall in love and get married. They fall in love. They are madly in love. She becomes the stepmother to his three children. He has two kids from a previous marriage and then a nephew that he raises. And then another child. So he had, I guess he had one kid from a previous marriage, one nephew that he was raising. And then he and Gabrielle Union dated for a while and then broke up. And then he was with someone else. She got pregnant. He and Gabrielle Union got back together. And that's the third kid. Oh, my God. So I've always wondered what the deal was because I was always under the impression that he had cheated on her and gotten somebody pregnant. I guess they were broken up for a little. I I think they like went on a break. That's really tough. Now that I know. That is a really 
tough part of this book is she gives us a really heartbreaking look into what it's like to be a woman in Hollywood where people are just like a a newlywed woman in Hollywood. Everyone is fucking obsessed with when you guys are having babies. She talks constantly about the imposition or like, what's it called? People's just like the inquisition. People are constantly inquiring inquiring about when they're going to have kids. She talks about how there was always tabloid rumors about her being pregnant. One time she had to go in for an x-ray for something and they just obsessively were triple, quadruple checking to make sure she wasn't pregnant because she wouldn't be able to go in the x-ray machine if she was pregnant. And when she was leaving the office after her x-ray, they were like, by the way, you guys would have beautiful babies. And she has this really heartbreaking line where she was like, we would have beautiful babies and we... I've had eight or nine miscarriages. They had a really, really hard time. She says for three years they were doing IVF. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds so heartbreaking, just like what you put your body through. I mean, ultimately now, of course, we know they had a baby by surrogate and I'm very yeah, happy I'm for them. Yeah, I'm so happy for I, them. Honestly, today is Mother's Day and I just saw her Mother's Day post. She's like, we worked so hard for this baby. I just think the way she shares that story about and the heartbreak and how honestly, when that's what you're going through, it's hard to go to a baby shower. It's hard to talk to your friend who only talks about their kids. It's hard. To, I mean, this seemed insane to me. This book was full of things that I'm like, I cannot believe anybody would think that this was an okay thing to say. In this section, it was the people who sent their own babies to them, like pictures of their children. It was like, look, it's worth fighting for. You'll get there soon. Can you imagine anything more fucked up than sending a photo of your baby being like, look how great mine is though to a woman who's just suffered eight or nine miscarriages? I mean, I actually found that unspeakably cruel. She does seem like an incredible step parent. She talks about really just going to bat for these kids. Obviously, they are also facing... An enormous amount of racism in schools because... Yeah, she talks about what it is to raise black children in America, and I mean... Mm-hmm. And also coming from the perspective of a step-parent who, like, doesn't have that complete... Not that parents have complete control, but it also is this... It's, like, hard to know what... The boundary is. Yeah. And she is, again, constantly bringing stats... At school, there were all these situations where, like, they would use a certain word to describe what went down. They basically accused one of their kids of bullying another student. And so she goes in for this meeting. She has printouts on printouts. And she's like, okay, so explain to me why my stepchild was classified as a bully where I've been in situations where other kids have done much worse things and you're not calling them bullies. Like what's the deal here? And he's and the principal was like, well, I never said bully. And she like hands him an email where he says bully. <laughs> yeah. And she, she talks about how in this specific incident, the instigating factor was that they were called the N word and they're like, well, boys will be boys. We're not really sure they meant it rudely. We think they were just singing a song. And so they're like, we just take those kids out of the school fuck those people. And it's just like, I mean, it is just like at every corner, it doesn't matter if you're Gabrielle Union, it doesn't matter if you're Dwayne Wade's kids, it's still there, the racism and that she's not just like fighting against it, but she's fighting to be believed. Yeah. And she's fighting these people who she spends tens of thousands of dollars a year on tuition to protect the children that are at that school. I mean, the fact that she has to, as a parent, come to this meeting with the dean of like an elite private school with printouts... Yeah, should we end with a fun with a couple of fun Hollywood moments? Okay. So she ends up on a list of people. The most exclusive list serve in the whole world. The list of people who get these elusive text messages that let you know when and where Prince is having parties. You just get a text with an address and you frickin' go. You drop I wonder what everything. it says. Like I I wonder what the text says. Like it, is there any inclination that it's 
Is there anything explaining that it's from Prince? Or it's just like a text with a title and you're just like, I know. Do you know, I wonder if there's like, you know how when you're texting someone with an iPhone, you get blue bubbles. And when you're texting someone with an Android, you get green bubbles. With I Prince, wonder if Prince purple. has like programming where he gets you purple bubbles. Wow. You got that purple text. <laughs> yeah. You get this purple text to your phone and you're like, I must go. She starts getting invited to Prince parties and she talks about the first time she goes, she walks into this, I mean, striking mansion. First of all, she goes with her friend, a famous actress. Did not get the text. And the, the guy goes, did you get the text? And her friend goes, no. And he goes, sorry, you can't come. And her, she's like, shout out to my friend for being such a good friend that she was like, you go ahead without me. So she starts going to these Prince parties. The first one she walks in and she's like, I walked in, I looked to my left and it was like Mary J. Blige, Mariah Carey into else. Oh, and Whitney Houston. And Whitney Houston. Chilling, having a conversation, sipping a drink. She says that Mariah Carey was a great storyteller. Told hilarious stories. I love that for her. Then she moves on. Matthew McConaughey is running through the party on the bongos. I can't believe... I can obviously believe Matthew McConaughey plays bongos. Stay tuned. We are reading Green Lights soon. But I can't believe he was playing them in front of Prince. Prince is lecturing people about the Jehovah's Witnesses. I guess he was a Jehovah's Witness and he loved to tell people about it. Yeah. Who was it? Penelope Cruz and Salma Hayek are in the corner dancing together. And so she ends up talking to Prince for a little bit. But she's like, oh, I great party. I wish I'd brought you a casserole. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, what? <laughs> and she's like, well, we're both from the Midwest. And, you know, I feel like I should have shown up with something like a tuna casserole. And he's like, I love tuna casserole. <laughs> and it's like this goofy little moment that obviously ingratiates her to Prince because she ends up on a pretty permanent list of getting invited to Prince parties. But it's also one of these stories that I feel like really contributes to this through line throughout this whole book about how like when you're black in Hollywood in anything, you have to really present this poise persona. Whereas like we have all these quirky white girls, we've got our Zoe Deschanel's. We've got our Jennifer Lawrence's. We've got our Anna Kendrick's. I mean, the idea that Anna Kendrick thinks that she's funny when meanwhile, Gabrielle Union's book actually made me laugh out loud like three separate times. Yeah, but it's all, it's not even the funniness is that they can present these personas that are imperfect in order to be like, look, I'm just like you guys. And we're supposed to be like, oh my God, this glamorous Hollywood star is tripping on the red carpet and talking about hamburgers just like us. Meanwhile, black artists, they have to be perfect. They have to be poised. They have to have the right answer to everything. Yeah. Gabrielle really is. She's very funny in this whole she book. She's so funny. I don't know. Maybe everybody but us knew that. Yeah. I guess it's also hard because there are so many celebrities who are like social media funny and I'm just like, who's writing this? Who told you to say that? <laughs> yeah, Gabrielle seems like she was like legitimately funny. Um, also, this party, I mean, she talks about how wonderful these parties were because they were act, They were one of the few times that all the different groups in Hollywood were able to mix racially. And she talks a lot about how the way you become from friends coming up in Hollywood is you're going to auditions. And so you're in the audition room with other people who look just like you because you're all auditioning for the same roles. So there does become like black Hollywood, Asian Hollywood, white girl Hollywood. And it makes sense like Leah Remini knows uh, Jennifer Aniston, knows Courtney Cox. Like they all came up together. But she talks about how so often the people in control the room where it happens are like these old white dudes. And so the people that they're vouching for are other white people. And that a lot of times black, Asian, Hispanic actors and actresses aren't vouched for on that level of, yeah, they're talented, but also they're cool to hang out with. And I know as a comic, that's so much of it is like, it's so who much. could you hang with? Who did you have a fun time in the green room with? Who could you go on the road with? And she was like, at these parties, you could end up 
in a bathroom line next to one of the most powerful men in Hollywood and get that opportunity to be endearing, endearing and cute and quirky, just like Jennifer Lawrence gets to. Yeah. And then you get to be the fun hang that gets vouched for in the room. And she talks about how Prince had these parties and he was one of the few people who were doing it who had these parties that really allowed all of the elites of all different groups to mingle. And she likens him to Andy Warhol in the way that he had his factory. And she talks about when he dies, how heartbroken she was to see that mostly the people who were listed at these parties were white people. And she's like, I don't know if that's all anyone cares about or if that's all anyone sees. But that's literally not why these parties were great. These parties were great because it wasn't just white people for the first time. And Ashley did point out the irony of how. Okay, it is interesting how she is making this point about how these parties are like about inclusivity and opportunity. Meanwhile, the first one she goes to, her friend got turned away at the door for not having the text. (laughs) But I think of the people who were there, lots of different kinds of people. Yeah. They sounded like a great fucking parties. I mean, it was an insane Hollywood who's who. It was a real who's who of who's where. Ashley, before we wrap this up, did you have any problems with this book? Okay, I will say the one thing that feels left out is that we don't know where her career started. She kind of skips from college and she's like, and then I got famous. And then she's talking about being in Hollywood. And I am curious as to what those early rooms were like. I also, I don't know that I need the story of like how she got her foot in the door, but we don't even get from like when she went from being this straight A academic to being interested in acting. Yeah. When did she go? Oh, cause she talks about 22 about getting her first modeling gig and she talks about it just in relation to not realizing what that meant for black women and their hair. But she doesn't talk about like, I mean, last we heard, she thought she was a eunuch. So when did you find out you were so beautiful you could be a model? <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm curious about like when she caught the bug, when she decided that this was something she wanted to pursue. How did she get discovered? Like, where did that all happen? I do feel like that was a story that was missing somewhere in the middle. My two bugaboos would be, one, there's no photos. I would have loved some family photos. Yeah, but the internet has photos. We could find them. Yeah, but I like it when they're in there. And she, it's like, you know, the people from middle school, her grandpa. I like when you get to that middle part and you're like halfway, the photo section. <laughs> I want to see the photos where she claims she wasn't pretty as an eight-year-old. Um, and then also my other thing is she has this story about m- mentoring lookalike Ryan Destiny and not wanting to take a photo next to her and being embarrassed when the photo runs because it's like Gabrielle Union in the newer, better version. I looked up that photo. Not only does Gabrielle, who's 40 years old, look younger than the 22-year-old Ryan, she's like just as beautiful and almost fresher looking because <laughs> shockingly, she claims, and I believe her, that she's never had any work done, including filler or a nose job. I believe her. Because I was looking she, at... She's looking older at a pace, yeah. I don't see any notable... Like, you and I spend a lot of time zooming in on photos to find the filler. And I really believe she is just a stupidly gorgeous woman who has never aged. And to her, hear her be like, I was threatened by a 22-year-old that I'm actually still hotter than. I was like, okay, bitch. <laughs> Sit it down. But otherwise, great book, Gabrielle. No notes. Otherwise, I mean, I fucking... You guys, this is one that I... I know we read the book so you don't have to, but this is one that I'll say... Bring it to the beach. Pick it up. Bring it to an airplane. Bring it to a rainy rainy day. Um, you guys, I'm so excited. We're going to be back next week with Bobby Miller, who is the afternoon special on TikTok and Instagram. She is an incredible pop culture expert. Um, if you have any questions, any stuff that we missed in this episode, we'll hit it next episode. And as always... We adore you guys. Love you. Bye.